Welcome to Sound and Vision, conversations with contemporary artists and musicians about the creative process. Here's the host of Sound and Vision, Brian Alfred. Sound and Vision is sponsored by USA-primed Frederick's Canvas. Supporting artists for 150 years, primed in Atlanta, Georgia, with the widest variety of primed and unprimed cottons and linens on the market. I've been using Frederick's for a long, long time, and it's always been a great canvas to work on in the studio. You can find Frederick's in your local art store or at frederick'sprintcanvas.com. Sound and Vision is also sponsored by Golden Artist Colors. Golden is a company based in upstate New York and is committed to making the best artist materials for artists to make work with. You can get it in just about every art store and online at goldenpaints.com. Gideon Bach is a painter who lives and works in Maine. He earned his BA from Hampshire College and his MFA from Yale University. He's taught at several places, including Hampshire College and Boston University. In 2004, he received a Simon Guggenheim Memorial Fellowship. In 2005, he was included in the American Academy of Arts and Letters Invitational Exhibition, where he received the Hassam Speicher Betts and Simons Fund Purchased Award. His work is derived from painting from observation, dealing with the furniture and Detrius in the artist's studio. Gideon's work has been written up in the New York Times, Time Out New York, Art News, Art New England, and the Boston Globe. He's had three solo shows at Stephen Harvey Fine Art Projects, and Gideon is represented by Stephen Harvey Fine Art in New York and Alpha Gallery in Boston. He manages an organic farm in Camden, Maine, and plays in the musical group art collective Pelican Movement that recently toured with Pyle. I talked to Gideon from his home in Maine for a talk about adjusting to the new environment and state of things, his show at Stephen Harvey being delayed, playing music, painting moves, and much more. Here's our conversation. But strange times. They really are. How's it feel? How's it feel up there? Well, it feels kind of crazy. It feels like um, I just have that sense of feeling like, wow, I was really spoiled just like, you know, two weeks ago. Yeah. um, In the way my life was just having, I mean, for us, obviously, we have two young kids and um, the amount of time, like, we can't really have playdates even these days and we can't hand them off to anybody. So we're both kind of on full time. That's a lot. And there's, yeah, they're kind of, they're so great, but they're going through a difficult phase with each other these days. They're six and nine and they just, it's just usually a few minutes of happiness and then they're on each other and, and, (laughs) So we're we're all going a little nuts these days, but we're really trying to make the most of it. I think that once we get into a little bit of a rhythm with it, um, we'll be doing more of what um, what we were starting to do before, which is kind of divide. You know, Megan takes one kid and I take another kid, and we just go do 
some of what we would be doing anyway, right. which is going to the studio. And um, they love that to a point. Um, it's been really fun sort of bringing one or the other of them up to the studio and we just paint each other. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's been really fun. But um, And then Megan just brings them to the studio and they, she just works on her paintings and they work on theirs and you know we have these funny little conversations because i've been recording the um the conversations that we have in the studio yeah and so even if i don't really do much on the painting it feels productive because i'm adding to the the sound piece side of it right how long have you been doing that well i've uh been working on these portraits for god i guess about three years now and Mm -hmm. I started doing it just opening up a garage band um, file you know one for each sitter it's mostly been my mom it started just with me painting my mom and I have a microphone on her and I just record everything she says and then each sitting I start a different track and so they're kind of layered overdubbed different conversations and that's been going for a while. I've been doing the girls for maybe two or three months now. Yeah. With Ada, the older one, it's, it's about eight tracks overlap. And with Helen, the younger one, it's um, just like four, but Helen talks a lot more. She's a lot. (laughs) She's really, she's, she's hilarious. She's, um, very loud, doesn't stop talking. So it's basically like Helen's is really funny. Ada's is pretty funny too, but it's like it's a lot more actual conversation about stuff. Right. Um, okay. um, so, well, you've been painting from life for a long time, right? Yeah. When did yeah. that start? Well, that's, that's a good question. I think it started in undergrad. Um, when I was at Hampshire, yeah, just kind of as you know, it started like a lot of people as a way to just learn how to paint, you know, in painting classes, right? And most of them were from life, but my problem was I was mostly interested in the abstract painters that I was seeing, especially at that time the abstract expressionists. So it, during the end of my time at Hampshire, I started just painting the corner of my studio with a chair in it and um, painting it over and over and over again and, um, to try to just have like a neutral subject matter and to try and mess around with paint so that I could learn how to use paint in a way that maybe, you know, where I could see how the Kooning, you know, did what he did, not that I ever able to do that but um you know just to kind of explore that and one of my teachers mentioned Auerbach and Kossoff and all those guys and so I kind of got into that the thing is I I really loved rendering objects in space with paint but I just loved the language of paint too so sort of choosing the neutral subject matter gave me a chance to kind of try and bring those things together a little bit. 
Yeah, do you feel like that gives you an opportunity to make the painting moves, like the lead role in a way? Yeah, yeah, a little bit. It also kind of, what was really interesting to me was when I would try and make the same painting over and over again of, you know, the chair in the corner, um, the closer I would would get to making them similar, the more I would kind of see the individual character of that painting. Um, you know, because the closer you get to replicating something, the further away you get from getting to what's unique about that thing. Right. And I, I mean, that's one of the things that's interesting about portrait painting for me is how you're always kind of aware of that. And also working from um, master copies, like making master copies. Yeah. The clo- closer you get to it being you know, like the original, the further away, or the more obvious the um, differences are between like your voice and the, the painter who made it. Original. It's kind of like, like doing cover songs, too. Yeah, totally. Kind of like the more your voice comes out. Right. Yeah, it's like uh, identical twins. It's like the tiny little differences become so much more magnified when you're around yes. people who are identical twins. It's, it, it's it's almost like what you notice, more so than just their personality. It's like, oh, it's your personality slightly different. Like, oh, you smile that way. You know, exactly. <laughs> like yeah. the closer you get to, you know, two things together, it's like the more you notice the little tiny changes in something. Yeah. Yeah, identical twins fascinate me for that that reason. Yeah, they're clones. <laughs> yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> it is, and it, it's funny because there's like its dominant male um, identical twin or uh, twin gene in my family, and oh. I was convinced that my son, like, we were going to have twins, you know, and and honestly, slightly afraid. Because <laughs> uh-huh. <laughs> can you imagine, right? <laughs> But my dad's a twin, my grandparents, my mom had twins between me and my brother that didn't make it. So there was like this, you know, there's wow. twins, twins in the family. And, uh, yeah, I was a little afraid of that, to be honest. <laughs> <laughs> it always seems dodgy, you know, like to have a clone. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I bet. Um, and that would be a really interesting painting though, to paint identical twins sitting. Yes, that would be. That's a great idea. Um, some of Ada's best friends, who she's hiking with right now, actually, are identical twins. And um, she can see their differences, and I see their differences when they're together. You know, it's very clear when they're together, but sometimes when they're on their own, I'm not quite sure. But it's more the way they kind of carry themselves, and, you know, Margaret's a, just a tiny bit more robust than Finley. Um, mm-hmm. But but if I didn't see them for a couple of weeks or something and I just saw one, I would have no idea which is which. God, is there anything more awkward than, than uh, you're, which one are you again? <laughs> yeah. Because I know they, they are sensitive about that. And so yeah. I really try to not say their name until I'm pretty sure which is which. Right. <laughs> it's a challenge. Um in thinking about your work since the first time I saw it, I thought to myself, this person started or has like drawing is in them. Like there feels like, it feels like drawing would be such a big part of your process and life and 
you know, what you do, is that, is that true? Or is that something, you know, that, that just comes across like there's a painterly aspect that, that harkens drawing, but maybe you're not doing that all the time. Well, it's funny. I, I don't actually draw that much these days unless it's a, I, there was a while where I was doing these big installation drawings, you know, huge wall drawings. Mm-hmm. I haven't done one of those for a while, but um, unless do you mean do you mean like the sort of the value structure of a painting? Thinking about drawing and painting, or yeah, just the I mean process of drawing. Well, the the sort of process, the action of it. You know what I mean? And there there yeah. feels like that energy that one would a. Uh, like when you look at some of the the paintings that you've made, like the energy in the paint feels like, oh, this is probably born out of a, a drawing, you know what I mean? But maybe it just the drawing is embedded in the painting process more than it's just born out of that, you know. Yeah. By itself. It, it might be. I mean, the thing, the funny thing about drawing for me is I love drawing, but when I'm when I'm drawing, a lot of times I want to just stop drawing and go paint because it sort of makes me think about sort of painting issues. Um, but what happens a lot, what I've realized a lot is that I, um, until fairly recently I was relying on the value structure to hold the paintings together and really letting the, the color not hold the structure as much. But, um, so lately what I've been doing is, Partially, I think mainly as a way to kind of get Megan's type of color into my work, which is something that I've wanted to do for a long time, just because I I love what she does with color. It's always really strange and surprising and cool. Um, was, but I still I still wanted to kind of use or wind up with color that was representative of what I was looking at. So I started getting really preoccupied with Monet's, um, the way he scumbles color together. Yeah. You know, when you get up really close to a Monet and, um, there are all these different colors. They're all the same value, but they're kind of intermingling in this way that makes your eyes hurt. Um, so I tried to, Start with a really hot color. Lately, this is about the last three years or something. And it kind of started where I stole Megan's uh, protest sign from the first Women's March. Yeah. Which is, you know, it's got Megan's, you know, the kind of color that she uses this like fluorescent pink and bright orange and this really aggressive blues and stuff. Um, and she didn't spend a lot of time with it, but it's a really cool image. It's a, you know, a fist. And um, so I set it up in the studio as a way to kind of try to get the, to paint it into the paintings and try to get the other colors to to fight with it a little bit, to, to come up in order to, you know, resonate against it a little bit. Um, yeah. And... What I wound up doing is, is starting with a really hot color, sort of getting the values in with just like a cadmium red light and cadmium red deep, and then letting that dry and then scumbling a different color 
on top of that with a palette knife sitting there. The um, paint that I was stumbling over was still clean, but it um, it just and because it was the same value, it did that vibrating thing. Yeah. Um, and and then kind of keeping sort of changing the color, letting it dry. You know, because I I because of the kids, I haven't been in the studio as much, so I could let a painting dry and then. And then go the next time I was in the studio, go over it with a different color. Um, and so, I mean, it, it feels really weird because it's not, um, it doesn't have that immediacy of being able to kind of change the structure of the painting through drawing. You know, like when I was just sort of relying on the lights and darks to hold the structure, I would... I could change things around more um, organically, it seemed like. So this this way, I was kind of holding the value structure and not really letting it hold the structure of the painting, but just every time I stumbled a different color over the painting, it totally changed the color, but in this... It changed the structure, but in a color kind of way. So it was really... It's been really fun, but it it feels kind of crazy to do. And... And they look terrible in photographs, you know, because <laughs> you can't see per- that. You can't pick up on that, right? Yeah, they just look kind of milky and weird and gray because all those sort of tiny little color interactions that are kind of hard to look at when you're in person, they just sort of even out in the photograph, which ultimately, I mean, I guess ultimately that's the point is that they'll resolve to a the kind of neutral color situation I'm looking at, but but it's really disappointing in this you know age where you've got to like kind of convey what the painting's doing photo- photographically, yeah, for Instagram or, or whatever, right? Like um, you gotta you gotta see them in person, but then you're trying to make them sort of sing. I mean, I guess you could shoot details, you know? Yeah. Because that's kind of like scumble glazing, you know, if you get cropped in there, it can look really interesting when you see it up close from a detail. I feel like that, you know, Turner paintings had that sort of, you know, I would see them in, in reproduction and they were cool. They were like this different sort of swirling fog of, you know, abstract weather or something and they were alluring. But when you see them in person, you can't get that in reproduction. Right. You know, the glazing yeah. that he was doing on those and they're just... They felt totally different. Yeah, same thing with Man yeah. A. Well, Man A in a reproduction, you know, they look like interesting paintings and they look great. But but when you see them in person, there's there's a sort of luminosity and I don't know a surface there that just like blows you away. Yeah, it's like seeing live music versus you know exactly the recording. It's it when you listen to a recording, even if you put headphones on, it comes at you in a certain direction. And when you see it mm-hmm. live, the the energy. There's something about the energy that you just can't simulate in a recording. Yeah, I totally agree. Yeah. But you, what, speaking of music, I mean, that was, it's always been important to you, right? Yeah. Yeah. What, what did I you actually. Did you play music when you were growing up? Like when you were young? 
Yeah, I was much more interested in music. I mean, I always drew and stuff um, in school. When I was a kid, I just drew all the time, constantly. But I also, you know, wrote stories and played music and um, everything. But drawing wasn't, or you know, making artwork wasn't central. Music always kind of was more central to me. And I always just kind of assumed that I was going to do music. Um, but then art took over in college because it kind of, like, there were really, I had some really good, amazing teachers where I went um, who, who really showed me kind of how to be ambitious with uh, with painting, with, with art in general. Um, as opposed to just it, as opposed to the way that I was thinking about it, which was just making pictures, you know, like telling stories through pictures or something. Yeah. Um, and that a lot of that came from abstract teachers who worked abstractly or thought abstractly. Um, yeah, it's like a pretty big door that opens up there. You know, I made the same left yeah. turn. I mean, I was in high school. I was. You know, I started college in pre-med because I was good in biology class, but I music was the thing that I loved to do when I was in bands and stuff. And you think, oh, uh, music is, it's its funny. Music feels like something like, oh, I'm going to do this. Like, I can do this as a thing to do, wh- mm-hmm. where you're not thinking like, well, I don't know how to make a career out of it. You're just like, oh, I, I, I like playing music. I could do this, you know. Whereas art was more of like, well... I like doing this. Is this something you can do? Like, is this actually something you can go to school for and do? And you sort of, once you realize you can and you get bit by the bug, I mean, at least for me, like I made that stark left turn where music, I mean, I still played music, but it was like, okay, art is going to be the thing that I'm studying. Music will be the thing that I'm doing, you know, at night or in basement shows on the weekend or whatever. Yes, exactly. That was that was just almost an overwhelming realization when, you know, the music that, the thing that happens when you're collaborating musically with, you know, three other people or however many other people is just, it's magic, you know, in time, what can happen between people. And then you go into school, most most music schools that I experienced anyway, it was just so dry and it just felt like all of that magic um, had to be stripped away in order for you to become this technical wizard, yeah. which just, you know, um, took what to me was special about playing music and listening to music and making music. Um, and then, but the art classes for me anyway, um, we're able to kind of explore in an analytical way a different kind of magic, like a conceptual magic that comes out of the work after you've made the thing. Was that sort That's, of similar for you? Yeah, totally. And I think it got to the point to where that magic of working with other people with music that is so real time and it's indescribable if you've never done it. I don't know how you can describe that sort of energy that happens when you're collaborating and and jamming and like, you know, it's going well and you're feeding off each other, but not a word is being said. Um, At a certain point, 
that uh, I think for ever, I mean, for most bands and most people who are playing music, it becomes the 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 vehicle for that, like being in a band or the sustainability of like working with those other people is really difficult because you're a bunch of different people and it's hard to keep that going, you know? And, uh, with artwork, you lose that magic in that direct collaborative sense in a way, but you gain it through this collaboration with art of the past and with the art that's going on around you. So it's a little more self-serving, a little more, selfish in a way because it's just like you and then the magic that happens between what you're making and then everything else that's being made but it's more sustainable because you can go to the studio and if you want to work hard you could do it so i think that fork in the road came too is like okay well you know will i depend on other people to be able to sustain this creative practice or or will i just you know kind of do my own thing it's not like i thought about it like that in time in real time but it just kind of worked out that way you know yeah, that's exactly it. That's how you keep going, is you, like going to different people's shows and being exposed to, especially for me, stuff that a lot of times I don't get it at first, or it's like really, maybe it's outside my wheelhouse or something. You know, it's something that at first kind of might rub me the wrong way. And then the longer... I look at it, it kind of opens up in this way and sort of opens up the way I think about what, what something can be. Yeah. That's, that's really exciting when that happens. Either it, I mean, it happens in music too, but I guess I was just thinking about, you know, painters who are kind of really pushing people's ideas of what, what works in a painting or not. Yeah, I think from for me the my experience with music kind of paved the way of being more open in a sense of like wondering what other people like that work like that you're talking about that you don't necessarily understand right away or you're a little confused by. You know, in in listening to music and growing up and playing music, it was kind of like I had the things that I was into and then I slowly branched out into a lot of other like if you generally love it, the first time I heard bluegrass, I was like, Well, that's not for me. You know, but yeah. as I got older, I kind of got into old time bluegrass or, you know, whether it was like yeah. weather report or something. And I'd be like, I can't listen to this as like smooth jazz or something, you know. But then yeah, yeah. the more you learn about music, the more you get into it, you kind of break it and you see what they were doing in relation to what was coming before. And it becomes really interesting. And I think that kind of opening up in music sort of enabled me to do that much more easily in art where I sometimes I see other people who are just like, yeah, I don't like, I don't like abstraction or I don't, right. you know, conceptual art, whatever that's BS. And, you know, I just can't think that way anymore. You know, I, I try to yeah. sort of understand everyone's creative pursuit and find value in it, you know, or, or come to terms with it in some way. And I think just generally being interested in, you know, not just things that look like my things or that I understand, but being interested in a lot of stuff that, you know, I just can't understand. Yeah. Yeah, looking with empathy at at work, trying to kind of empathize into someone's project that you might not <clears throat> at first. That's really exciting. It's it's exciting when it happens. Yeah. It doesn't always happen. But well, I always had a problem with, you know, a lot of, when I was in college, a lot of the music that I liked was siloed, you know, like, uh, you know, if I think about a lot of like DC, like indie 
punk stuff was kind of like what we're doing is good and everything else is crap you know and everything is fake except for what we're doing and this is altruistic and real you know i kind of had a problem with that you know in a way inside but you know the music was really good so yeah yeah because <laughs> like, it was just part of the angle or something you know yeah like fugazi and stuff you mean yeah yeah, all that. Yeah. I mean, I played, you know, the, and a lot of the musicians that I played with had that kind of indie rock feel to where they were like, yeah, what we're doing is, is good and the other stuff is, is, you know, I don't know, it's pop or it's fake or it's, it's just like a paycheck or whatever, you know. Yeah. But, you know, it's yeah. now I'll watch, you know, The Voice or American Idol and love it. I'll be, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> When I think I first yeah. I saw American Idol, I was like, well, this is bullshit. Like, you know, this is just crap or whatever. And then, like, by season two, I'm like, oh, these guys are really good. <laughs> you know? Exactly. Maybe that's just yeah. age. I don't know. Maybe it's age, too. You get older, you become more accepting of things. Yeah, I mean, I, it's it was easier for me when I was younger to just kind of dismiss pop in general. But um, hanging out with my girls a lot you know, they, a lot of times they want to listen to stuff that I would never listen to ordinarily. But, you know, after a while I'm like, wow, Imagine Dragons is pretty good. Yeah. Or, you know, this is like <laughs> Taylor Swift. Right. I, which then kind of like, like I start to listen to a Taylor Swift record and I'm like, there's a lot of shit going on in here. And like, and then, um, who are the other, other, um, Lana Del Rey yeah. and stuff like there's all this stuff out there that I never would have been exposed to but now and then I'm listening to it see that's I think we've boiled down the beauty of art that's the beauty of art the diversity that's of it. it and like and it makes people well it doesn't make people it enables it opens the opportunity for people to widen their scope of what they accept or or are interested in or communicate with you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I think that's what artists are doing. I don't think artists make work because they're like, well, I only want to talk to these people. Like my figurative paintings are only for people who enjoy figuration. You know what I mean? Like, no, you just, you want people to look at it no matter what they're coming from, you know, and sort of engage in that. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, I often think about like the, like the, um, <clears throat> how metalheads and punk rockers and, not, I mean, not all of them, but a lot of them, yeah, and bikers too, like, you know, tough looking, you know, people who sort of put on this front or this look that is designed to kind of repel people in a way. And you realize that a lot of those people are like the most sensitive, sweet, like kind, generous people there are, but they, they kind of they need some kind of, and this doesn't go for all of them, but the vast majority, especially metalheads, like what's so funny about metalheads is how almost all the metalheads I've met and all the punk rockers um, are just really sweet people. Maybe they're damaged or something, but but they do this thing to kind of keep the people who are going to be judgy away. Yeah. And... Um, and the people who, you know, maybe they're completely different from them, but they aren't judgy, then 
they can be really nice to them because so they just don't have to deal with uh, people who are going to judge them anyway. And I feel like like I sometimes if I see work that seems like in in uh, like intentionally aggressively pushing on something, I'm kind of like it makes me want to kind of dig a little bit and and see if they're actually you know doing something as a usually what what I find is that it just takes a little bit of empathic looking or questioning or something and and you realize that maybe what seemed like it was saying a certain thing is actually saying something very different if you um, empathize into it yeah I love the idea that some of those artists, like, I don't know what you're thinking in your head as far as like the look of that work, but you know, there's certain things that pop into my head of like artists who might have that sort of guarded, you know, pushing back a little bit that those are the kids in high school or like, you know, the nerds or like the indie rockers or the, you know, the ones that don't quite fit in that are at the dance on the side with their arms folded. Like we're going to do our own thing, man. You know, I guess that's what punk it, you know, those people just trying to find their people who, you know, are empathetic to who they are and, and, you know, their voice and, and just want to feel accepted within their own community of, of people, you know? Right. So those, those, Artists are doing that too, I think, probably. I mean, they're, they're making it, you know? Yeah. yeah. They're de- devoting all their time to making these things, so it's they're, they're invested in one way or another. Absolutely. So, um, well, let's talk, I mean, talking about, you know, your, I guess you, your college days, like in high school, did you think to yourself, okay, well, you know, I'm going to go to school for art and this is what I want to do, or was it, were you directed to starting to make work just because you took some art classes and the teachers were supportive or how did you kind of, you know, catch the bug? Um, well, I, I just, I always sort of drew on the side and was more focused on music. And then I wound up going, you know, sort of bumping around to a couple different schools going kind of part-time here I was working in restaurants or whatever. Um, and I went to this art school called Portland School of Art, which is no longer, it's actually now Maine College of Art in mm-hmm. Portland, Maine. And, um, and I got really into drawing and painting from life there, but it wasn't satisfying because I, you know, I was much more involved in music, interested in music. And I went to Hampshire to, to, with the idea of bringing those two interests together by doing animation or film or something, Um, you know, going into film or doing animation where I could construct everything, you know, work visually, but also bring sound ideas into it. I was really um, mainly motivated by people like the Brothers Quay and Mm-hmm. Um, Schwantmeyer, I think his name is. You know those. Uh, the, um, I remember where they're from, uh, Czechoslovakia or, or somewhere in that area. Mm-hmm. Um, but pretty fascinating, surrealistic kind of found object animation with really weird sound mm-hmm. tracks. 
for these films. They're short films. Um, but so I went there thinking I would do that, and I just wound up doing all these other things uh, that became ultimately more interesting to me. And the music, I like I was saying before, the, the music just felt really dry to study in college. And yeah. so I just played in kind of punk bands and stuff and um, and got really into painting and sculpture and stuff like that. Were you and, playing in bands while you were doing the art stuff? Yeah, yeah. And I remember this one guy who I really looked up to as a painter. Um, he came to one of our shows uh, and he saw me. I was wearing a dress and we were playing this like really aggressive but really fun music. It was really, it was pretty raw. Um, and I was just having a lot of fun clearly. And he saw me in the art barn making these, you know, really carefully considered brown abstractions of still lives and stuff. And he was like, what the fuck are you doing? You need to get that into your painting. And he was talking about me wearing a dress, jumping around with a guitar he was like, you need to get that in there. And I was kind of like, I don't really know what you, I don't really know how to do that. But, but it really struck me, you know, how, and now I, I look at people who are kind of like clearly dividing their ideas into the serious stuff and the fun stuff. And I just feel like you just need to get that fun stuff into your work. Yeah. Um, so it makes sense now at the time it, I just didn't know how to do that. But I think kind of narrowing the focus on just um, painting a chair over and over again forced me to kind of bring the fun into into it right. a little bit. So it wasn't necessarily just... It's funny because when you think of fun in a painting, I think my for me, I default to color, right? You think vibrant and that becomes fun, but there's so many different ways to sort of bring fun into the work. It could be the subject matter or the, you know, the image and, and it doesn't have to be yeah. color, but that's, for some reason that's the first place I go. Does it, is it that way for you? You, um, if you feel like a painting isn't fun, do you juice up the color? Do you do something different? Or? I think I'll probably add something playful. It could be color, but it could be, you know, something that's happening in the work, you know, in the image that becomes, I don't know if it's necessarily fun, but something that's playful, you know, mm-hmm. in mm-hmm. the midst of what a lot of time is. I mean, I feel a lot of my work, even though it has like a pop sort of feel to it, you know, like Warhol is a big part of my consciousness, you know, and, right. um, but the work is really serious, you know, and I've always loved artists like that who, you know, have kind of a playful look to the work, but it, uh, there's an underlying sort of gloom or, or heaviness to it that sneaks up on you, you know? Yeah. So totally. I guess the fun in mine is maybe just the, the overall, pe- like the cover. Like I, I've got a good cover on the book that's playful and fun, but when you read the words, you know, it could be a little unsettling, I think. Yeah. Yeah, I like that. That's a specific dynamic, I guess, that I'm, usually navigating and weaving in and out of 
in certain degrees, mm-hmm. depending on, you know, the times and what I'm interested in. But yeah, it's, it's interesting. Like if you think about the work as being almost like an equation of, of, you know, or like a stew, like I always say that to students, like when you're painting, it's like a, making a stew, you know, and you've, you're putting all these different ingredients and, and they all mean different things, the ingredients themselves, then they all create this different recipe and balance of flavors together and then it depends how long you cook it and how you serve it you know it's like yeah it's a multi-layered process with so much meaning and i guess it's what makes it really interesting because it's you know although there's this idea that everything's been done before it's nothing's been done quite the way that everyone's doing it so right right that's why it lives on i guess yeah yeah so in your work, do you feel like that stew, like you've got the recipe and you're just tweaking that, like let's say the dry scumbling, the scumbling glazing that you're doing, is that kind of like tweaking the, you know, adding a different sort of ingredient to it? Well, this this work, um, the stuff that I've been doing the last three years um, feels very different in terms of process and I hope it looks different to other people, but I, I sometimes I'm aware that like what feels like a big move to me, like maybe people would be like, Oh, it's another, you know, another <laughs> one of those studio paintings or something. Um, Isn't that funny? But it, <laughs> it is funny. You yeah. make a subtle little change and you're like, Oh man, things are really getting crazy in the studio and people come in and like, what the hell are you talking about? Those... <laughs> oh yeah. You change that, <laughs> you know, to them, yeah. it's no big deal at all. But, you yeah, know, but it means a lot when you're sort of like doing that, you know, and and that's your when you're subtly changing something, it feels monumental. Yeah, these paintings feel crazy. They they feel almost to me this work in general feels almost irresponsibly crazy. Like with the the show at Stephen Harvey's that was supposed to open tonight, um, but got canceled. I I was going to have a. Um, a speaker over a rocking chair playing back the sound pieces that um, I made with my mom. I was going to have a painting or maybe two portraits of my mom and then the accompanying sound piece playing over the rocking chair so people could sit down and just and hear the all the different um, tracks playing together. Yeah. And... Um, I also did two different diptychs of Ada and Helen. And um, if people wanted to, they could hear the sound pieces associated with those too. Um, So that feels to me, like in terms of the color and the sound pieces, it feels to me like a different show, but it's like, it's really just still, I'm painting the studio and the people in it. So, so... So it's the same, but, you know, it feels like a a shift to me. Yeah. Um, but it also feels like, like I say, irresponsible. It feels like, um, uh, I don't know, the color is kind of, it's kind of dumb. It's kind of like <laughs> I'm just sort of playing with color and I'm like, get, I feel like it's something that I've wanted to do for a long time is, is be able to kind of explore color the way Megan does. You know, every time I walk into her studio, a lot of times she'll be working on something. And my first impulse is like, what the fuck are you doing? But then, you know, it opens up into this 
and it works in this amazing way. And that's kind of like what I want to do. I want to engage with color like that. But for so long, I just felt like I, I feel like I have to paint the colors that I see in order for the thing to work in order for something. I don't, I don't know what it is I'm necessarily going after with that, but it's got to, you know, the light has to kind of relate to what I'm seeing. Like I can't just, you know, paint the wall pink and right. leave it that way, even though, you know, sometimes I want to. And in some of these paintings, I, I am leaving like the floor and one of them is, is wound up the floor and one of them wound up being this really aggressive pink and I'm leaving it now. And maybe it's good that the show was postponed till the fall because maybe I'll sit with that and it ultimately is stupid and I'll just kind of like keep scumbling until it kind of calms down. Or, you know, the idea is that it's a combination of like calm overall but really hot in the, you know, it's made up of all these different colors that are fighting with each other. Yeah. Do you feel like that in saying irresponsible, that the irresponsibility is related to its distance from reality? So representation is, you know, if you drift aimlessly away from representation, as far as like color is concerned, that that becomes irresponsible. Yeah, I guess I think irresponsible might not be the word I was looking for, but it, but it's it's an interesting question because because um, I do feel a responsibility to kind of like on some level represent what I'm seeing. Otherwise, just kind of like I, one of the things about <clears throat> you know I always wanted to make abstract paintings. I I love the way that. Uh, you know, like the different ways that um, you think of looking at a Joan Mitchell versus a de Kooning. That's one of the things that I loved about Yale's art gallery is they would pair people. Yeah. And so you look at, there was a while where they had a Joan Mitchell right next to this de Kooning. And the way the two structures spoke to each other was just amazing. Like I spent so much time going back to that that room and just looking at those two together. Um. And just the the way that they could be working just in pure color and physicality and and just formal issues and create this thing. Every time I tried to do that, it was just terrible because I really needed, I guess I just really need parameters, like strong parameters. And so go, looking at my studio, I would always have something to kind of bounce off of. Um. I think I got way off the topic of it. Well, I think uh, what makes sense to me is it seems like the foundation of a lot of the decisions that you're making in relation to making the paintings are so based on what you're looking at that if you just start throwing curveballs for no reason, you know what I mean? It kind of defies that impetus to of, of looking and responding to what you're looking at. You right. know what I mean? So th- right. there's a sort of... 
I don't know, in a way, it's almost like an honesty to the way that you're painting, that you're you're listening to what you're seeing. And, and once things are sort of reacting based upon like subtle changes in what you're looking at and you're making those decisions, if you just start saying like, well, you know what, blue hair, then yeah. <laughs> that, that throws the whole system out of whack. You know what I mean? But then when you look at someone yeah. else who doesn't, who maybe works in a way that they're responding to just decisions that they're making that are based on, you know, just um, impetus, not like necessarily yeah. looking at something specifically, then it becomes, you know, it, it self-driving. And then it makes sense to them that, you know, I'm going to put this neon pink next to this, you know, purple with this bright yellow next to that. And that changes things. So it's almost like the abstraction is really taking out the looking at something and you're just looking at the things that you're making. But, but you're really interested. It seemed like, you know, from all, from as far back as I can remember that there seems to be this act of looking in your work that is really what it's about in a way, you know, it's about that experience of of trying to understand this space or this situation and then to describe the energy of that. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And the color, the scumbling color too is like, is part of that process because, you know, when I would just, mix up the color that I saw and put it down, it would just be this kind of, even though it looked like the color that I was looking at, it would just be this kind of brown or this kind of gray. But when I look at those browns and grays in space, you know, you see all these different colors shimmering within that neutral. Yeah. Um, And um, so I guess ultimately I'm trying to kind of get something like that. Yeah, you're you're kind of like you know John Coltrane doing the circle of fifths around the melody, as opposed to someone like Anthony Braxton who's coming in with like you know an inverted line drawing and saying, "All right, guys, just you know go around this visual drawing to create a composition and go for it." You know what I mean? Like they're both they both have their own logic and they both have their uh-huh. own sort of system of of expression and investigation. Mm-hmm. neither willy-nilly you know they're both based on this system but i'm sure looking at one looking at the other you'd be like oh it must be nice to just get up there and like wail on those drums and just say screw. there's two of us screw we'll just do whatever we you know feed off the energy and not right. be hold into this melody that we're kind of floating around you know yeah yeah i mean i look at you know i, I look at minimal abstract painters or sculptors and i think man i would love to do that you know because i feel the sort of meditative like beauty of that but it's just not i don't i don't know it's it's like you were talking about before trying to you know like you should be fun in this thing that you do sometimes people do different things and it's hard to just cram the one thing that they like to do at nighttime into their daytime thing you know what i mean it's like if you mm-hmm. do stand up com- if you do stand up comedy at night for fun and you work at a bank during the day, you can't cram that stand up during the bank hours. You can get fired. You could try. <laughs> you could try. It might go over well with some great. clients, but <laughs> you might not last long. <laughs> I guess it depends how good the comedy is. You know? Yeah. Yeah. But some people are really good oh, at that, good. sort of like navigating or like, you know, bringing certain aspects of of their um you know, like everyone does different things in their life and you bring a different energy and, and a different kind of like, I don't know, um, purpose to different things that you do. And, and sometimes it's okay if they're separate. You know what I mean? Yeah. Yeah. 
You know, someone, have you talked to Angela Dufresne? Not um, yet. Oh, you've got to. It's like she does that so beautifully. She brings, she's just, you've, you've talked to, you've met her, right? Let's, no, I haven't met, but um, I'm working oh, on man. it via man. internet. She's a good one. She's, she's just amazing. Like, just hanging out with her is like holding on to a water skiing rope and just being dragged <laughs> through the water. It's like the ideas are just flying out of her at light speed all the time. And they're about, you know, film theory and music theory and music history and um, all these semi-obscure references that, you know, that are just, they're all of equal importance yeah. to her, you know, painting history and um and she's just so funny. She's brilliant. And um, and the way <clears throat> that she brings all of those ideas into her paintings just feels really organic and free and, and amazing. I mean, I feel like the paintings stand on their own, but like when you hear her talk about them and flesh out all the stuff that's going on, it's really exciting. And she's just always been that way. It's like I've known her for kind of a, terrifyingly long time and she's just always had this incredibly alive mind don't you uh don't she, you wish don't you wish they sold that at gnc yes <laughs> i could use a lot of that i need i need a bottle that you know yeah just the energy alone yeah. when you meet people who have that dynamic energy and you're like man yeah that must be nice or maybe it's uh, a burden <laughs> it might well, be exhausting <laughs> I don't know. I just, I, she's just, she's one of those people that is just so generous um, that she, she just, you know, I can hang out with her, you know, for one evening and then just be sustained energetically for, you know, for a while. That's yeah. one of the things that um, makes it okay to live in Maine. Um, you know, I, and I have like really, fun friends here too but like it's really fun to live here and then go to new york and like hang out with you know all my new york people who i probably wouldn't hang out with if i lived there right you know and then come back and then just kind of be sustained by that energy for you know in the studio yeah and otherwise but the aging process here i swear has got to be two times the national average yeah, it's and it's when you have a kid, as you can imagine, you know, having a kid. I mean, there's such great things about raising a kid in New York City. The the diversity and the music and the schools and you know, like there's there's just great stuff about it. But it is hard at the same time too. I bet. Yeah. You know, there's no yard. That's the one thing you don't have a yard. You know. Yeah. I mean, I grew right. up in Pittsburgh and like the South Side, where it's small, but I had a tiny yard, and that little yard made a big difference in my life. You know. Just being able to get out of the house and, you know, um, that might be magnified a little bit in the current condition of not being able to get out of the house. God, it's yeah. like I, I just wanted to get a little warmer so we can go out on a patio, you know? Mm -hmm. That's yeah. like the, the goal. <laughs> so where in Brooklyn do you live? Uh, East or Williamsburg. Oh, okay. Cool. So right by, I mean, my studio is like 10 minutes away in Bushwick. So I'm right on the line between the two. Right. Um, and, you know, we, we bought our place a long time ago, so we're, we're here, you know? Yeah. Which is the only reason we're here, I think. <laughs> right. Um, it's just, it's gotten so expensive. 
yeah. and studio spaces too. You know, you just become, I, I've just funny. I do a, a lot of podcasts in people's studios. And I remember when I first moved to New York, the studio was the idea of the studio was this thing where it's like, you have to have a certain amount of space and it was almost like it defines a certain aspect of what you do. And in the past five years, I mean, I've been to studios that are the size of, you know, a shoebox and people are grinding in there and making great stuff and people working at home or, you know, living in a studio, yeah. whatever it is, or having like tons of studio. I mean, when I first got to the studio, it wasn't even a thing where like studio mates, I feel like was almost like, what you have like two people in a space. That's bizarre. Yeah. You know, now it's like commonplace. It's like a turnkey, you know, like it's like a Airbnb for making art. And, like people come in, come <laughs> out, and say, you know, yeah. it's fine. I mean, people realize that's the way it's got to be done, you know, to be here. Yeah. And just the most yeah. important thing is, you know, what you're making at the end of the day yeah. and, and that you're making stuff. Yeah. Which I think yeah. it will, you know, it's in a time like what we're going through now too. a lot of people working in their apartments and stuff. It, it'll be a good challenge for people and get them outside of their comfort zones, which I think can be, can be a really good thing. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Constraints can be uh, good sometimes. I think they are. I think they're better for us than we think they are constraints yeah they're not comfortable but they you know i don't think our planet's comfortable with the way we're acting right now so i think we have to try to be a little more uncomfortable to try to make better changes for everything you know yeah i'm definitely like watching the food consumption you know you just become more conscious about things which i think is you know people need to be conscious yeah not to get all preachy (laughs) no no i think you're right though so it's it's a a bummer that the show's delayed, but it, we're shooting for the fall for it. Is that the plan? That's the idea. If we still have society, I mean, if we still <laughs> have society, it's so crazy to think about what <clears throat> just um like I mean every everyone's everything's closing every everyone's kind of going into this lockdown mode, and the more I learn about it in order for this to work, it's going to have to be a while this yeah. way. And I just think about the, the shocks that have happened to the economy from just a, you know, relative to this very minor thing. Yeah. It's, it's hard to imagine that we could um, just come back after this. It's hard to, you know, I, I think about the friends of mine who are running restaurants where they're just right on the edge all the time. Yeah. And their their employees are right on the edge too. And these are successful restaurants. And um, the idea of them having to close for two months and then coming into the summer, it looks like it might be quite a bit of that too. And at least around here, that's when the tourist season really picks up and and that's just around here. Like I think about, it's terrifying to think of New York, you know, all yeah. of that stuff just shutting down in the schools and like parents having to kind of leave their jobs with no, you know, they use the term safety net, you know, nothing underneath them to hold them up. Yeah. It's crazy. I know it's, so it's, it's unprecedented. I think, well, at least in my lifetime. I mean, I wasn't around during World War One and Two. I know people made a lot of sacrifices, and 
you know, businesses shut down and people started producing things for the war or whatever, you know, like it's it happened before, yeah. I guess, but you know, it's, I think it's going to be a true test for our generations, you know? Yeah. That's what Boz said. The guy, um, I deliver eggs to his restaurant. I brought him a bunch of eggs yesterday and I was just kind of, we were talking about it and, and he was just like, well, you know, we could be in a war. It could be that. And yeah. I was just kind of like, oh yeah, true. This is kind of relatively easy. We're not, I mean, you know, it's still the beginning supposedly, but it could be a lot worse, I guess. Yeah. I mean, you have to keep things in perspective, I suppose. I guess. And keep making work, you know, keep doing creative yeah. things to keep your, to, some of the greatest creative things have been done during, you know, times of difficulty. So we can really strap that on our back and go into battle, you know? Yeah. Can I, what have you, sorry. I was just going to say, can you FedEx me some of those eggs? We're running low. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> well, they, I'll send some toilet paper. I'll pack them in toilet pack paper. A, yeah. Yeah. You. Could you? <laughs> you can't get eggs around here anywhere. It's frustrating. Really? Yeah, they're all out everywhere. Wow. The stores are empty. It's really hard to get things delivered. Ah. Yeah. Eggs sound good right now. Yeah. Farm yeah, fresh. Well, I've got a lot of them. Yeah. <laughs> I was going to ask, what are you listening to in these these times? Ooh, music-wise. Um, yeah. I've been listening to well that new Caribou came out recently, so I was listening to that the Tame Impala that came out. Um, this guy Weird Inside. I've been listening to a lot of Weird Inside, some electronicy stuff. Um, trying to think of what else, and a little Van Halen. Oh, <laughs> I'm looking at my Spotify recent list. <laughs> um, but yeah, Van Halen's I did, always good. Yeah, you know, it's funny. My my son's really into music and and Panama came on the radio and yeah, we were listening to the radio and I was like, "Oh, man, this brings back a lot of memories." Yeah. I was listening to a lot of old Tortoise too for some reason. Wow. It's been a, it's been a while, but, you know, I've been listening to those guys. Mhm. And uh lots of podcasts, books on tape, you know, trying to keep that side of the brain warm. Yeah. How about yourself? Well, I <clears throat> for the last um, couple of years, I've been really, really obsessed with Kendrick Lamar's uh, two records, uh, To Pimp a Butterfly and Damn. Yeah, it's good stuff. And, yeah, and Kate Bush. And, um, <laughs> and then... Sure. But, but then, like, none of that seems... Like, I just... Um, the paintings that I've been working on are, are really sort of focused on those two Kendrick Lamar records. And, um, but I've been really obsessed with, um, Kate Bush, especially the Hounds of Love record. Mm -hmm. and I, I don't know Kate Bush. I mean, I know her sound, but I haven't listened to a lot of her stuff. Well, I recently <clears throat> went into a kind of a dive into interviews and stuff. And I found out that there's this one, it's one very dark song that comes near the end of um, Hounds of Love. It's called Hello Earth. And there's this amazing vocal part. It's like, it's kind of like throat singing, kind of like um, melismatic 
uh, what's that? Like uh, Gregorian chant. Yeah. Um, and she said that she took it from uh, the Nosferatu soundtrack. And so then I started listening to that. And that is amazing. Yeah. But I, I mean, I saw that movie, you know, a long time ago, but wasn't even really aware of a soundtrack. But it's pretty, pretty wild. Recommend it for these times. It's like weird and dark, but also kind of like ambient and beautiful and uplifting, tiny bit scary. Yeah. Maybe. <laughs> it's almost like. If you're going to jump in the ice bath, why not just go butt naked? I mean, why bother with any clothes? Just let's exactly. just, let's slip into that ice cold bath naked. Just jump on in. Yeah. yeah I, I watched uh, the other day, I watched Koyanis Katsi, you know, and, you know, why not? <laughs> let's embrace, wow. embrace the end days. <laughs> sure. And Philip Glass, you know, that soundtrack is just like, oof. Uh, you know, it's, yeah. so, it's so good, but it's so um, haunting in a way. Yeah. So I'm right there with you. I mean, you know, Kate Bush, Philip Glass, Lockstep. Yeah. That Kendrick Lamar is really good, though. And I love Thundercat. I've been listening to some Thundercat, too. So, Thundercat. Have you heard That's his solos? Yeah, he plays no. bass. He plays the bass on a lot of Kendrick Lamar stuff. But his solo records uh, okay. are, are really great. Thundercat. Okay. Check him out. I will. So, have you um, heard the... Go, sorry. Have go you ahead. heard the Have you heard the die, uh, dissect podcast? I haven't. Where, oh my god! It's uh, yeah. His first, um, I think his name's uh, like Cole Kushner or something. And his whole first season is dedicated to, to Pimp a Butterfly. Sounds. He goes into yeah, song by song. He just it's amazing how in-depth he goes. It's, it's pretty great. And a lot of it, I, <clears throat> um, a lot of what he says I wasn't aware of, and a lot of it I had kind of different interpretations of, but it's really, really remarkable. I'm going to check it out. Have you listened to Song Exploder? A little bit, yeah, a few yeah. of those. I haven't for a while. I haven't been listening to anything because i i can't listen to podcasts in the studio it's hard right um, it's got to be like yeah, a nighttime just, before you go to bed or or when you're driving or something like that i think when i'm driving or on a plane or something like that i yeah they're great for when i'm driving because you know i just zone out and and really get into them yeah but i can't be doing anything i can't like listen to them and grocery shop i can't do <laughs> Kick, i have to do kickbox. one thing or the other you can't, <laughs> you can't do ufc ufc <laughs> while re- listening to the latest <laughs> here's the thing <laughs> no i haven't mastered that yet yeah it's tough right to split yeah. the mind <laughs> yeah yeah i can't even check my email and have a podcast on it's got i've got to devote my my brain to it but like when i'm driving you know it's it's great that's that's kind of what got me into them just driving a lot. Yeah, me too. It keeps you uh, awake at the wheel too, you know, for long drives mm-hmm. because uh, music's great, but it only lasts so long. But if your brain's stimulated, you can you can really keep alert, you know? Yeah, it's a long drive you have, right? Is that like five hours? It's four, yeah. Four, yeah. But if you have two good long 
form podcasts, you know, by the end, it's not over. The second one's not over. And you're like, I don't want this trip to be over yet. I want to finish this. You know, it's great. It goes by quick. Yeah. That happened to me with hardcore history. Oh yeah. um, Those are epic. Yeah. The one about um, Genghis Khan. I haven't heard that one, but it sounds like it would be. Oh man. Momentous. Yeah, it's really crazy. It's so good. and um, But it's like eight hours. You, know, yeah. you need an eight-hour drive. Right. It's, it's like, honey, i got to drive to L.A. I'm going to listen to this <laughs> podcast. <laughs> I'll, see, I'll see you on the flip side. Hopefully he releases yeah. a new one by the time I have to come back. <laughs> right. God, where were those whenever we went on tour? You know what I mean? To have those oh in the God. van would have been amazing. Yeah. It was just like mixtape. Well, that's great, too, actually. Yeah, those are pretty great. Yeah. So, um, well, what? How can people? I guess people can. Or you're not going to show any of that work because you're planning on showing it in the fall, right? So you're not going to do kind of like a virtual exhibition of it. You're going to hold on and. Just... I. I don't know. I. <clears throat> um. I tend to think not, just because the. Uh, I don't think the sound piece would. Would work. Yeah, I don't really know how we would do any of it. I feel like it's um, it just doesn't translate photographically very well, yeah. and the, so hoping for the best for the fall. I mean, something else I guess might happen, but um, I don't know what's happening with Alpha in Boston, but maybe show something there. But I don't think they're going to be very open yeah either you kind of want to save it for when people can really see it i guess so i mean i guess it like it depends on how things go this this summer i was there was a while where this thing was kind of ramping up and we were talking about you know at first we were like well we can't have the opening can't have that many people it's a small space that steven has yeah but then um started kind of thinking about the show in the context of this this virus happening and people being really isolated and it was kind of interesting thinking about you know there are a lot of skeletons in, i've been like my grandmother died a year and a half ago and she she owned the skeleton and so i just took that and started painting it in my studio and it was really funny you know it's kind of like it adds a level of humor to the paintings I thought but now kind of like when we were thinking about putting the show up it just seemed like that just seemed like it sends a different kind of message than it otherwise would have yeah a different feel yeah seemed like I don't know if that would be goofy or offensive or or what but it just kind of felt like just holding off seemed the best idea Right, <clears throat> and and then it seemed like, well, we don't really have a choice anymore. Right, because that decision was made for us. Yeah. So Grandma just has skeleton laying around the house. She did. <laughs> what the hell? <laughs> <laughs> she would. Yeah. When we we're just going to glaze loved, over that. <laughs> no. <laughs> she how I think how it worked um, was that. She was the second wife of my grandfather, and my grandfather's first wife was an artist. 
and she had an art, uh, a skeleton, I guess, to draw from or something. It's something that people did back then. And, um, and then she kept it really so that she could, when we were kids, she would bring us upstairs to visit Uncle Charlie, who she would have in bed, <laughs> and she would pull the covers back and say, say hi to Uncle Charlie. Uncle and she just, yeah, she loved that. And then she, you know, of course, on Halloween, she would bring him down and dress him up for the kids who came trick-or-treating. Why not? I mean, if you have a skeleton lying around, it's a perfect time for yeah. it. Uncle Charlie. Yeah. Isn't Uncle Charlie exactly. the name for a curveball in baseball? <laughs> wow. Is it? I think so. I think that's I, what I they call it. I didn't know that. Uncle Charlie's a curveball. Like one of those oh, 12 to 6 big sinking curveballs, Uncle Charlie. <laughs> Just fun fact. I had no idea. That's yeah, great. Yeah. <laughs> um, well, how can people see your work who, you know, do you, what, what's the best way for, they, for them to check out your stuff? Well, the, uh, that's a good question. I, I had a blog. I haven't updated it very much. Gideon Bach blogspot.com mm-hmm. I don't even know if people still do that I don't really very much but um, Stephen Harvey Fine Art Projects um, website shfap.com mm-hmm. he'll probably have the images up there I'm sure he does by now um, so and now that you're mentioning this maybe I'll Try and update things. I sometimes put stuff up on Instagram. Yeah, um, it's just Gideon, Gideon Bach, or yeah. Um, and I've tended to not post many of these optical color paintings just because they they look so weird. But maybe I will. Anyway, anyway, my uh, Instagram handle is. Just Gideon Bach. Cool. Well, maybe we could use an image for the poster for this podcast, if that's cool. Oh, yeah. Yeah, I'll send you something. You can get it out there that way, too. Yeah. Well, okay. um, it's a bummer about the show, but I'm sure it's going to happen down. I mean, let's hope it's sooner than later, you know? Yeah. I think everyone's been thrown at Uncle Charlie on this one, so, you know, <laughs> it's got to ride it out, you know? I'm mostly bummed that I just didn't get to see the shows I wanted to see. Vera has a show up at Monroe and, you know, all kinds of really good ones. Mark Lewis at, um, I forgot where that is. Mark Lewis has a show. Bowery Gallery, I think. Yeah, there's a lot of good stuff. I guess it it makes you appreciate, it'll make us appreciate going out and being able to see stuff and, you know. Yeah. Take something away for a little while and you really will learn to appreciate it. Yeah. For for a yeah, few okay. weeks and then you'll be like, yeah, whatever. Just see nothing. <laughs> you know, quick people forget stuff. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, it'll be good. I think when everyone comes back, come back stronger and and really, you know, not take things for granted hopefully. Yeah. Like a party at the end of this thing is going to be really fun. Oh man. That's going to be epic. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Well, thanks a lot. It was it was great to catch up. It's been a while. Yeah, it has. Thanks so much for for doing this. Sure. And I'm taking you up eventually when they allow me out of the tri-state area to come up to Maine. I want to come visit. 
come up anytime. We uh, built a pizza oven, and any excuse to have a picnic is a good one. And listen, you know what's good on those pizzas? You crack a fresh egg on that thing? I did that once. It didn't work very well. I think the oven was too hot, but I'll try it again. Oh, yeah. I cooked it. No, you do it after it's done cooking. Like you take it out and then you crack the egg. Oh, that's the secret. That All is. Right. That's the good stuff. It's kind of like I a Korean Korean bibimbap, but just put that on your pizza. It's good stuff. Oh, my God. And you got the amazing. farm fresh ones, you know. Yeah. Again, after we're done here, I'm going to take, I'll give you my FedEx number and you can FedEx me those eggs. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Sound good? Sure. I'll just figure out how to pack them. Right? Uh, yeah, that's so they don't break. Yeah. That should be a challenge. <laughs> All right. Thanks a lot, man. It was cool, great man. to talk. Thank you. Great talking to you. Sound and Vision is recorded, edited, and produced by myself, Brian Alfred. You can find more about the podcast at soundandvisionpodcast.com. You can check out more images at Sound and Vision Podcast on Instagram. You can find out more about my work at brianalfred.net or on Instagram at Alfred Studio. Many thanks to Golden Artist Colors, to Frederick's Canvas, and to the New York Studio School for their sponsorship of the podcast. Many thanks to Michael Lovett for the intro and Lullatone, which is the music that you're hearing now. They have a new release on Bandcamp that you can pay as you wish for a download. Check them out on Lullatone's Bandcamp page. Many thanks to all of you listening. If you can, go to iTunes, leave a rating and review, tell a friend, share an image, and uh, many thanks for your support. <laughs>